Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible and turn over to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 875. We are right at two-thirds of the way through Luke's Gospel, and we're specifically in the middle of an extended section that is focused on Jesus' teaching. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' most challenging teaching on the cost of true discipleship, and then last week, we looked at one of Jesus' most famous teachings as he showed us God's willingness to seek and save the lost. And now this morning, we're going to look at what has to be some of Jesus' most confusing and puzzling teaching uh, as we look at yet another parable and its implications for our lives. And so we're in Luke chapter 16, and we are going to pick up this morning in verse 1. It says, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so last week, in, in three parables, Jesus addressed the Pharisees and their unwillingness and refusal to embrace God's love for, for spiritual outsiders as they grumbled about all of the tax collectors and sinners who were coming to hear Jesus teach. And now as we move into chapter 16, Jesus turns his attention back to his disciples. And he tells them a parable. And in this parable, there's a rich man who has a manager who is in charge of all of his financial accounts. And at one point, the rich man hears a rumor that this man, this manager, is wasting his possessions. In other words, his, his investment strategy is losing money rather than making it. And so the man calls the manager in and tells him that he's being fired... And so he needs to turn in his account book so that his eventual replacement will be able to use it. As the manager takes this news in and, and thinks about what he's going to do, he has a real conundrum. Right? Obviously with a, a reputation for incompetence, nobody else is going to want to hire him to be their manager. But, but as we read here in, in the text, we also see in verse 3 that, that he's convinced that he's not built to do manual labor, and he's not willing to just beg on the side of the street either. 
those are pretty much the only options in the ancient world. And so what is this guy going to do? Well, in verse 4, he comes up with a plan. And one by one, he tracks down all of the master's clients, and he cooks the books for them. He alters uh, the accounts and reduces their debt with the understanding that since he is helping them, they will turn around and help him in, in the future. And so we see that one guy who owes 100 measures of olive oil, which would have been around 150 gallons, has his bill cut in half. And then we see another uh, guy who owes 100 measures of wheat, which would have come to about 60,000 pounds. He gets a 20% discount, and, and so on and so forth. And so depending on how you figure it, this manager is, is knocking off tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt for these people. And in an honor-shame culture, like in the, the first century in the Middle East, it would be expected that all of these people would be compelled to return the favor to him and seek to repay him. And so that's this guy's retirement plan. With his last act of accounting, he cuts huge portions of debt off of all these people's bills with the understanding that they will turn around and provide for him in return. Now, in verse 8... When the master finds out what the manager has done, surprisingly, he seems to be impressed with his ingenuity. Not in any way that he's happy about all of the money that he's cheated him out of, but more in the sense of, you know, I've got to hand it to you. That was a smart move. I'll give credit where credit is due. Right, the key word here is the manager's shrewdness, which refers to the ability to see the potential in a given situation and take advantage of it. Right? The manager saw an opportunity, and he took it. And so shrewdness isn't inherently good or bad. Right? It all depends on how you use it. But it's certainly a good quality to have, and that's really the, the whole point of this parable. Right? If you look in the middle of verse 8, Jesus comments that the sons of this world, meaning unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, meaning believers. So in other words, unbelievers, in Jesus' mind, are better at seizing opportunities than believers are. But what does he mean specifically? Well, in verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And at first, especially in light of the parable, it may seem like Jesus is calling us to be dishonest in some way. But the word that we translate as unrighteous wealth here isn't referring to embezzlement or stealing or cheating. It's referring to money as it exists and is used in this temporary sinful world in contrast to the perfect heavenly rewards that Jesus offers us. And so the, the NIV and the CSB translation of worldly wealth is probably more helpful to understand what he's getting at. And so the idea is that disciples of Jesus should use their earthly possessions in order to make friends who will then one day welcome us into eternal dwellings. And when you compare this to Jesus' teaching about money that we saw back in chapter 12, it becomes clear that his point is that we should utilize our resources, our finances, so that other people can come into the kingdom. Right? While secular people in the business world look to use their money to create relationships and opportunities that can only benefit them in this life, 
Christians have the potential to use their resources to create relationships and opportunities that will pay dividends throughout all eternity. Now, we talked about this not too long ago, so I'm not going to belabor the point this morning, but it's worth thinking about again for just a moment. How do you think it will feel when you walk into heaven and out of nowhere you get tackled and hugged by somebody you've never seen before in your entire life, and then they explain to you that they are in heaven because a missionary was able to share the gospel with them in part because you gave to fund their mission? Or or what about when somebody introduces themselves to you and they tell you that they came to faith in Christ through a local church that was finally able to proclaim God's word in a way they could understand, in part because you gave to fund the translation team that made that possible? Or will you be able to hold it together when a brother or sister in Christ tells you the story of how they were able to persevere in the faith despite persecution because our partnership with Voice of the Martyrs gave them the food or the medical care that they needed? Church, as we are faithful to give and to use our resources to fund kingdom work, we are making friends that we will not know that we have until we get to heaven but who we will enjoy for all eternity. And when we get there, as I said back in chapter 12, we will not be concerned that we gave too much. We will wish that we had given more. Now Jesus is going to continue to explain and to apply this parable as we pick up again beginning in verse 10. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so picking up again in verse 10, Jesus elaborates on the point of this parable. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And so at the end of the day, we are either people of integrity or we are not. And if we can be trusted with small responsibilities, then we will be able to be trusted with larger responsibilities. And on the other hand, if we are untrustworthy with small responsibilities, it would be insane for someone to give us control of more responsibilities. Here's more things that you can mess up. That's not generally how that works. And so the point here is that if we manage our earthly possessions and resources in life faithfully, then we will receive even greater blessings when we get to heaven. And again, you see that contrast between unrighteous wealth and true riches there in verse 11. This section reveals that everything we own ultimately belongs to the Lord. And that he has given us what we have as a stewardship. He has entrusted us with our resources. And we're expected to manage them wisely according to our master's purposes. And to the degree that we do that, we will be rewarded with even greater blessings for all eternity. We'll be rewarded in heaven, which brings us to a decision that we must make. You notice in verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so here Jesus draws a line in the sand and he calls us to make a choice. Interestingly enough, it was actually possible to have two masters in the ancient world, that by various circumstances it was possible for for two people to have legal rights over you. But to Jesus' point here, you can't truly serve two masters. If if one master tells you, hey, I want you to mow the grass Saturday at 9 o'clock, and the other master says, hey, I want you to mow the grass Saturday at 9 o'clock, then you have to come to a decision about which master you're willing to disappoint. And when Jesus talks about loving and and hating the other, remember, love and hate are not primarily, from a biblical perspective, emotional, as if you really like this one master, but you don't like this other one. Love is about a commitment. So when we're pulled in two different directions, we have to make a decision about where our ultimate commitment and loyalty lies. The idea of, of money as a master... That, that could potentially control us instead of us controlling it, it brings us back around to the concept of idolatry, right? where we look to something other than God to give us what only he can truly provide. This can happen in, in any number of ways. Instead of trusting in the Lord, we can look to money to give us a sense of security or, or a, a sense of fulfillment in life or, or status in the community. But when we do that, if we do that, then we will not use our money for kingdom causes. We'll either hoard it all or we'll spend it all on ourselves. At the end of the day, either our love for Jesus will determine how we spend our money or our love for money will determine how much we serve Jesus. And this brings us down to the the brass tacks of the matter, right? How should this actually work out in my life. Anytime uh, the Bible talks about how we use money, I think that most all of us feel this tension, like we're, we're concerned that maybe we're not doing everything the way that we should, but we also feel this other tension that we don't necessarily want to do anything differently than what we're already doing. And, and so when I preach or teach about this, I always get a, a number of, of crossed arms and furrowed brows as people are, are you know, what are you going to say about this? What, am I, what, do, you, what do you want now? Right? We, don't, we don't like feeling tension. Right? We usually do anything that we can to resolve tension. But I think that Jesus intends for us to live with this particular tension. Right? Should I do this? Or would there be a better way for me to utilize this money? And for the record, this is a very difficult topic for me to preach on. Right? It's, it's, it's so much easier for me to have a text that just says, don't murder people. Right? Or, or study the Bible, or make time in prayer a priority, obey your parents, whatever. Right? That's all cut and dry. We know exactly what's expected, and then we can move on, and we can either do what it says or not. Right, but this, this idea of, of making friends by means of unrighteous wealth, that doesn't necessarily have a one-size-fits-all application. And that makes it very challenging for me as a, as a preacher. Right? I, can't, I can't tell you that you should make your coffee at home. And that you should take the $6 that you spend at Starbucks every day and give that to missions instead. Right? That may be what you should do, but, but that's too specific for me to be able to bind your conscience in that way. I can't tell you that it's, that it's wrong to, to buy a luxury vehicle and that you should just get a reliable car that gets you from point A to point B and, and donate what you would have spent on the, the nicer vehicle to the work at East Texas Baptist Encampment. 
Not that may be what you should do, but, but again, that's too specific based on what Jesus gives us here for me to bind your conscience in that way. Right? Jesus' teaching forces each one of us individually to consider how, and wrestle with how God's financial blessings to us should lead to us supporting kingdom work in, in, in whatever various ways in order to bless other people eternally. Now, obviously, we have to take care of ourselves. Right? We have to pay our bills, and we have to put food on our tables, and we have to save appropriately. But then after that, each one of us has to work through the details of, of how we use our money. And the way that Jesus frames it isn't giving us an exact amount, but he really just asks us the question, how much reward do you want in eternity? We can hash that out individually. So the issue here is whether our view of eternity is as clear as our view of this present moment and the, the opportunities and the things that are available to us right now. And starting in verse 14, Jesus is going to deal with those whose view of eternity is not clear at all. And so we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so as we pick up again in verse 14, we see that while Jesus has been speaking specifically to his disciples, the Pharisees have been listening in. And Luke reminds us here, as he told us back in chapter 11, that the Pharisees loved money. They're full of greed. And so when they hear Jesus talk like this about money, they ridicule him, right? They, they respond with rolled eyes and sarcasm. And in response, Jesus tells them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Of course, we know uh, from elsewhere in Mark chapter 7 that among all of the other traditions that the Pharisees developed around the law, uh, there were a number of, of traditions specifically about money that they used as financial loopholes for their own benefit. And so Jesus tells them here, you make sure that you look good to people on the outside, with your outward displays of religion, but God knows the reality of your heart, and he's not impressed by what he sees. In fact, the end of verse 15, he puts God's rejection of the Pharisees in the strongest possible terms of an abomination. And then in verses 16 through 17, Jesus emphasizes that the law and prophets, meaning the Old Testament scriptures, were until John the Baptist, but since his ministry ended, the good news of the kingdom is being preached. And so as, as we saw back in the very beginning of the story, John the Baptist was the bridge that, that connected the old covenant uh, under the law to the new covenant, which is, is founded on Jesus. And once again, Jesus is calling the Pharisees to recognize that in him, the fulfillment of all of God's promises of salvation are coming to fulfillment. And now is the time for people to come into the kingdom. 
Now, the, the phrase that everyone forces his way into the kingdom, uh, it brings us to another translation issue. Your translation, or perhaps a footnote in your translation, may uh, indicate that this phrase could also mean that everyone is forcefully urged or urgently pressed into the kingdom. And, and without boring you with, with technical details, I actually think that is a, is a more helpful uh, rendering of it in this context. And we can talk about that more tonight at the Q&A if you're interested. But, but the point is that the time of fulfillment is here. Right? The Old Testament has brought you as far as it's going to be able to take you. But Jesus is here now, and he is calling everyone with a great sense of urgency to come into the kingdom through him with faith and repentance. Being united to Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the law stops being the law, as Jesus makes clear in verse 17. Right? God's commandments in the Old Testament are good, and they aren't going anywhere. But this does mean that with Jesus, the purpose of the Old Testament has reached its completion. And now the law is applied in our lives in light of Jesus, what he has accomplished. And so contrary to what some would say today, we do not reject the Old Testament. We simply understand and apply it in light of Jesus. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And at first glance, or frankly, even at 20th glance, uh, this one line on marriage just seems to kind of be dangling here randomly. Right? It's, it's not immediately obvious how this goes with what came before or what comes after it. Uh, but as a number of people have pointed out, it is often the case that if we misuse our money we are also likely to misuse people, or, or to take it from a different angle. If we make the mistake of relating to our possessions it's as if they are all about our happiness in this life, then we are also likely to relate to relationships as if they are ultimately about our happiness in this life. And so we can take or leave them based on how we feel. Money and people tend to go together. The same heart issues, the same perspectives will come through in both ways, which can lead to us mishandling them both based on what we want in a given moment instead of based on how God has revealed his will. And so perhaps there is a stronger connection here than we recognize at first. Now we know that divorce and remarriage was rampant in the first century. Like the traditions about money, the Pharisees uh, developed a whole host of traditions about divorce and remarriage uh, that allowed marriages to end for basically any reason. Right? If a husband was tired of his wife, then, then he could get a divorce for, for pretty much anything, including burning dinner. Uh, so there was no necessary sense of commitment. If something better came along, uh, then you could get a divorce and pursue someone else instead. Now, of course, all of this had to be done according to the traditions. Right? We're, not, we're not just running amok here. There's, there's rules and regulations. But, but those are very superficial when you get down to it. And in the same uh, way, Jesus in, emphasizes that they may be trying to maintain a super spiritual image and cloak their actions with religious terminology and traditions, but again, God sees their hearts. And he knows that they are abusing the law in order to excuse their selfishness. So God established marriage as a lifelong commitment. And so he, Jesus paints the practice of divorce and remarriage as 
adultery. Now, we dealt with the subject of divorce last year in our study through Malachi, and so we don't necessarily need to rehash everything that we talked about then, but I do want to reemphasize a couple of points uh, just before we close. First of all, we as a church need to be clear that divorce and remarriage undermine God's design and intention for the family. Now, certainly, it should always be said that in this broken world, there are situations uh, where, where divorce can be legitimate or in, in rare cases possibly even needed, but God's design and intention for marriage is always compromised when marriages fail. And so we should do everything that we can for them to, to, to fight for them to be healthy. And then secondly, uh, we need to feel the weight and the responsibility of marriage, but we also don't want to run into an equal and opposite error of turning divorce and remarriage into an unforgivable sin. Right? For some of us, that ship has already sailed, and there's nothing that we can do about it now. And in that case, we need to be equally clear that, that forgiveness and restoration can be found through Christ. And if we bring that to him, then there's no reason to live under a constant sense of condemnation because there is no condemnation in Christ. So my encouragement, if you're divorced and remarried, is to give your new marriage the honor that God wants it to have. Marriage is a covenant relationship that is designed to portray the relationship between God and his people. And so our faithfulness there goes hand in hand with our faithfulness in finances in God's eyes. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus calls us to be faithful in the way that we handle our finances and our relationships, particularly marriage. And what we see, or what, what we should see, is that a major aspect of discipleship is having an eternal perspective of what's truly important in the big picture that then shapes and informs the way that we live our lives now. Right, if we are followers of Jesus, then he has called us into his kingdom. And our faithfulness with temporary earthly possessions and situations will set us up to being given greater eternal treasure in heaven. And so this morning, may the Lord find us to be faithful servants who are prepared to receive their eternal reward when he establishes his kingdom forever. Let's pray together.